These words, words that may be very, very familiar to some of us, but new perhaps to others. And we pray that whether we've heard these words a hundred times or for the first time this morning, that you might speak to us, that you might surprise us, that you might speak into our hearts and into our minds. Holy Spirit, please be at work now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue our series looking at what it means to share our faith uh, with those around us, people who are our friends, people who are in our families, people who are our work colleagues. And we look at this very, very perhaps familiar story. Um, I was thinking this morning, it's nearly 40 years ago um, that I remember um, David Watson and the Riding Lights Theatre Company Uh, coming into our school to do a school assembly on the parable of the good punk rocker. And if you recognise that reference, that dates you. Uh, You're almost as old as I am. Uh, But these are very, very familiar words, the parable of the good Samaritan. Perhaps the best known of Jesus' stories alongside the parable of the prodigal. But what does it mean for us today in Edinburgh, in Scotland, in 2016? Well, Tamerian Sarnev was one of two brothers responsible for the bombs that killed three people and injured 140 people at the end of the Boston Marathon in April 2013. Following a manhunt, manhunt if you remember, um, he was shot dead by the police. It took three or four days to find him and his brother, and he was shot in the pursuit. After his death, no cemetery in the Boston area, and no cemetery, in fact, in Massachusetts, and no cemetery for hundreds of miles around would agree to allow his body to be buried in the cemetery. A Christian called Martha Mullen heard about this and felt convicted to do something about it. So she began to research and to phone round and to contact Islamic funeral services to see if there was some way, somebody somewhere, would give this person a burial. Eventually she found one in Virginia that would accept. When she was asked why she, as a Christian, and as a complete stranger to the family, should choose to get involved in the burial of a Muslim terrorist, that she had never met, she replied with these words. It made me think of Jesus' words, love your enemies. I felt that Tamarian was being unfairly maligned because he was a Muslim. And Jesus tells us in the parable of the Good Samaritan to love your neighbor as you love yourself. If I'm going to live by my faith, then I'm going to do that which is uncomfortable. Now that, if you like, is a modern application of this parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. A story of many things, compassion, ignorance, prejudice, racism, and heroism. If it wasn't so well known, it would make a great feature film. But the reality is, we all know how the story ends. Um, There's no twist at the ending that we could throw in that would make it unpredictable. But that's exactly how it was for the first people who heard Jesus tell this story. It's in the middle of this encounter between Jesus and a lawyer. The lawyer is trying to show how good he is, trying to show how religious he is. 
And he goes through some sort of um, scripture ping pong uh, with Jesus until suddenly he asks this question, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells this story. A man was traveling the 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a notoriously dangerous road. That's part of it on the screen. You can see as the road winds down, it's overshadowed by uh, mountains and hills. There are some really, really good places uh, for people to hide and to jump out and to get you and to rob you. It was notoriously dangerous, had been for centuries. The man, Jesus said, is attacked by thieves. He's beaten and he's stripped. Now, why is that detail in in the story important? It's important because in those days, as in our day, you can tell where somebody comes from by how they're dressed and primarily by how they speak. So if you hear an accent, you know where they're from. If you can see how someone's dressed, that might give you an idea where in the social strata they fall. It, It might not, but it might do. This man was beaten, stripped, and left, Jesus said, half dead, verse 30 of Luke chapter 10. That description, half dead, means that he is next to death, i.e. he is comatose, he is unconscious, he cannot speak. So this man cannot be identified. He can't be identified by his accent, and he can't be identified by his clothes, Anybody coming across this man doesn't know where he's come from, doesn't know what social strata he's in, doesn't know anything about him, and can't find anything out about him. And then Jesus said, a priest came by. A priest who had been up to Jerusalem. He'd done his two-week shift at the temple in Jerusalem, the high point of his clerical career, preaching at Balmoral or preaching at St. Paul's Cathedral or preaching at St. Peter's in Rome or St. Giles Cathedral this morning at the service of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. It couldn't get any better than that. Discuss. (laughs) And Jesus said that the priest saw the man and he passed by. Now, the priest actually wouldn't have been walking, as that priest is pictured. He would have been riding on a horse or a really, really good donkey. Priests in those days were regarded as aristocrats. Rich, those were the days when people looked up to us and bought us nice cars and the equivalent of horses and donkeys to drive. So this priest is riding along and he sees this guy who's naked, he's half dead, He's comatose, he's unconscious. And what does he do? He passes by. He's just been in Jerusalem, working in the temple. It's the peak of his ecclesiastical career. And now he sees this guy and he passes by. If the priest came even within four meters of a dead person... That would have made him ritually unclean. Never mind going and touching him, even coming within four meters meant that he would have been tarnished, contaminated. And that would have meant that the priest would have had to go back to the temple in Jerusalem. The priest would have had to go to the eastern gate of the temple with all the other ritually unclean people. 
he would have had to buy, find, buy, and then reduce a red heifer to ashes. And this ritual would take at least a week and be very expensive. And worse than that, everybody at the Eastern Gate would know who he was. Because everybody would have been there for the previous two weeks when this guy was serving at the high altar in the temple in Jerusalem. So everybody at the Eastern Gate, and perhaps worse still, everybody in the clergy at the temple would have nudged each other and gone, psst, he's back. And he's ritually unclean. Wonder what he's been doing. Discuss. So the priest thinks, stuff that, and he keeps on going. Then Jesus said, a Levite came by. And the sense is that he sees what the priest has done. The idea of the road is that it winds. And so the sense in the story that Jesus tells is the Levite is behind the priest and can see the priest pass by on the other side from where this guy has been beaten up and left for dead. So the Levite thinks, well, the priest has passed by. I'm going to do the same. If he didn't stop, I certainly am not going to stop. Again, the Levite was sort of the director of, of worship. He was the Mark Cameron of the temple. And he would have gone from where he led worship, perhaps in his local synagogue, up to Jerusalem for two weeks for the high point of his career. I know it doesn't get much better than this, Mark, but it could do. Um, and he was led worship for the people for two weeks in the temple in Jerusalem. And now he's on the way back. And he thinks, well, if the priest hasn't stopped, I'm not going to stop. So he passes by on the other side. And then came, said Jesus, and everybody in the crowd would have known what was coming next. A priest, then a Levite. It's obvious who's going to come next. A Jewish layman. Somebody who had served at the temple for two weeks. The same would happen. Um, there were priests who would go to the temple for two weeks. There were Levites who would go to the temple for two weeks. But there were also Jewish laymen, part of what was called the delegation of Israel, who would go and serve for a fortnight in Jerusalem. A bit like perhaps a layperson at the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland this week. It was the high point. Maybe. But here was the twist. Jesus says, and then came a Samaritan. Now, because we've perhaps known this story for many, many years, because we know of an organization that exists called the Samaritans, we lose the sense of shock that the people who were listening to Jesus for the first time would have felt. The Samaritans were the deadly enemy of the Jews. They were schismatics and they were heretics. The dispute between the Jews and the Samaritans had gone on for centuries, hundreds of years of hatred, suspicion, and rivalry. Who were the true inheritors of Abraham and Moses? Who had the rights to the land? Only a few days before, if you look back in Luke chapter 9, verse 54, the disciples have asked if they can call down fire from heaven on a Samaritan village. They've stopped a man driving out demons in the name of Jesus because he is, quote, not one of us. Chapter 9 and verse 50. What was the hatred like between Jews and Samaritans? Well, it still carried on to some extent between Israeli and Palestinian today. 
But perhaps the closest one is think of the rivalry between Hutu and Tutsis in Rwanda that led to that horrendous genocide 22 years ago. We, I've heard preachers, I've used the analogy myself, we talk about you know, Rangers Celtic and Hearts and Hibs and English and Scots. That's nowhere near it. This is Hutus and Tutsis. This is ISIL and the people of Syria. This leads to death. This leads to war. This leads to real conflict. And it's been going on for hundreds of years because it's a dispute about land, it's a dispute about territory, and therefore it's a dispute about money, but also it's a dispute about identity, and at its heart, it's a dispute about religion. Now, the crowd would have been ready for Jesus to say, and then came a noble Jew who helped the man. They could have coped even just about if Jesus had said a noble Jew came and helped the guy who was a Samaritan. But the idea that it was the Samaritan who was the hero of the story, unthinkable. Absolutely unthinkable. But the Samaritan comes, sees the man and draws near. And he doesn't give him just first aid, but he gives him transport to an inn. And paying for two weeks stay and care... Because if he hadn't, the man would have been arrested because he had no money left for being a debtor because he couldn't pay the hotel bill at the end of the two weeks. The Samaritan's care is both immediate, holistic, and it's thorough. And the question comes to the lawyer from Jesus. So who was the neighbor to this man? Now, I think it's significant that the lawyer can't actually say the S word. He can't say Samaritan. He can't bring himself to say it. It gets stuck about there. really sticks in the craw. And he simply replies, the one who had mercy on him. He can't bring himself to refer to the guy as the Samaritan. The one who had mercy on him. And then comes the challenge from Jesus. You want to know what you need to do to inherit eternal life? Well, very simply... (laughs) Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. It's an impossible standard that Jesus sets. And yet the challenge still comes to you and to me this morning. Where Jesus says to you and to me, go and do likewise. Now there are some paradoxes in the story. What must I do to inherit eternal life? The whole point about an inheritance is that you can do nothing. You simply inherit it. So there's a paradox at the, at the heart of the question that the lawyer asks. But Jesus simply says to the lawyer, go and do likewise. And the simple challenge that Jesus gives to you and to me is go and do likewise. Now, this is no golden rule, as some people have interpreted it. This goes to the heart of who we are, who we are as people, who we are as Christians, how we see ourselves, how we see God, and how we see other people. It goes to the heart of how and why we share our faith, as we're in this sermon series looking at how and why we share our faith with people who don't know Jesus. And at its very heart is this very simple question. 
Do we love people in order that they might become Christians? Or do we want them to become Christians because we love them? It's quite a subtle difference, but it's actually very, very significant. How we answer that question will inform how we look at church. It will inform how we think about prayer. It will inform what we think about God. It will certainly inform what we do and how we act towards people out with the church. And it fundamentally reflects how we think about ourselves and how we think about God. Do we love people in order that they might become Christians? Or do we want them to become Christians because we love them? It's a simple question, but it's actually a profound one. Because Jesus simply calls us to love people. And after we've finished loving them, to go on loving them. And after we've finished doing that, to go on loving them. And after we've come to the end of that, to go on loving them. Because that's how God loves us. And what you and I are called to do and called to be is to reflect the character of God. To reflect how God loves. And if we realise how much love and mercy and forgiveness and compassion have been extended to us, therefore we realise how much love and mercy and compassion and forgiveness we need to extend to other people. If we know how much we've been loved and how much we have been forgiven, then that and more is how much we should extend to other people. The question is, how much more like Jesus are we becoming? Last week we celebrated Pentecost and remembered the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. God's power, God's life, God's Love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, fruitfulness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. How much of that is being seen in our life? If you think back six months ago, if you think back 12 months ago, if you think back to yesterday, are you and I more like Jesus today than we were yesterday? Or six months ago? Or 12 months ago? Is the family likeness seen more fully in you and me because we are God's children? You see, how the Holy Spirit works in us, how the fruit of the Spirit works in us, will shape everything about us. I love the story that Shane Claiborne tells in his book, The Irresistible Revolution. Um, Shane Claiborne was with us for an event a couple of months ago, an amazing guy. Uh, but when he was... Uh, um, between college and university, he went to work with Mother Teresa in Calcutta. And there was one thing about Mother Teresa, working with the nuns and working with the poor in Calcutta, that just stayed with Shane Claiborne. What struck Shane Claiborne about Mother Teresa was her feet. Shane Claiborne says that he couldn't take his eyes off her feet. Every morning the community would gather for communion, mass, and they would come together and they would 
gather round a table with bread and wine, and Shane Claiborne's head would be drawn not to the bread and the wine, not to the cross, but simply to Mother Teresa's feet. And he found himself looking at her feet. After a few weeks, one of the nuns noticed, because it was quite hard not to notice, that Shane Claiborne was looking at Mother Teresa's feet every morning. One of the sisters drew alongside him and said, have you noticed Mother's feet? And he said, well, it's funny you should mention it, actually. Um, yeah, I have. Um, I can't. What's wrong with her feet? Because they were incredibly ugly. They were horrifically deformed. Claiborne thought, had, had she contracted leprosy through caring for so many people suffering with that disease? Has, has she contracted leprosy and, and no one's sort of letting the cat out of the bag because that might be the end of her work? The nun shook her head and said, no, there's a much simpler explanation than that. Every week we get loads and loads and loads of shoes donated to our community for the children to wear and the people that we work alongside to wear. Mother hates the idea of somebody in our community having to wear the worst pair. And so what she does every week, whenever shoes are donated, is that she digs down so that she has the worst pair. And years of doing that have deformed her feet. Years of loving her neighbor deformed Mother Teresa's feet. There are two and a half thousand verses in the Bible that speak about helping the poor, feeding the sick, helping the needy and the hungry. And time after time, Jesus told stories about repeatedly caring for people. And he demonstrated again and again and again acts of compassion. Sometimes in the church in the 21st century, particularly in the evangelical part of the church that we belong to, there's this debate between social transformation or evangelism. Which is more important? Which should take priority? What should the church be about? Evangelism or social transformation or social justice? As I've thought about it over the last few years, I thought, if you were to ask Jesus that question, what would Jesus say? If you were to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, we're having a few problems in the church and we want to decide what's more important, evangelism or social action, social compassion, social justice, which is more important? What should we invest more time in? What should we invest more money or people in? You know what I think Jesus would do? I don't think he'd say a word. I think he would simply look with a really quizzical look on his face and go, what? It's not either or. It's both and. It's not either or. It's both and. One leads to the other all the time. And yet there are churches who will take a stand on this issue. And Jesus again and again demonstrated the one should come out of the other and the other should come out 
of the one. If we say we're God's children, then other people should see the family likeness. Mother Teresa's feet were changed because of her love of people. Our hearts should be shaped by our love of people. And the most loving thing we can do, yes, feed the hungry, yes, care for the poor and the marginalised, yes, show care and compassion, but also we do need to tell them about Jesus. But it's not either or, it's both and. Just this week, Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, did an online Bible study on Facebook for the first time. And at one point in the Bible study, he simply said these words, to point people to Jesus is the principal task of every Christian. To point people to Jesus is the principal task of every Christian. That's why we exist as a church. That's why you're still here on earth. Have you ever wondered why when you became a Christian, Jesus didn't take you to heaven straight away? You became a Christian, bang, straight into the presence of God. Would it have been much easier for you? If we're honest, it would be much easier for the rest of us. Why? Because we've still got work to do. Because people need to see Jesus in us. We need to be the people who point other people to Jesus. That survey that showed nearly 70% of Scots have never read the Bible. The only way they're going to see something of God, something of Jesus, is because of you. How Jesus lives in you. How Jesus lives and loves through you. So the question comes to you and to me this morning, how are we doing? Have we allowed our hearts to be shaped by Jesus? And in particular, as we think about how we share our faith, who are we praying for? This autumn, we have an incredible opportunity. The Alpha Course has been redone. These two, uh, Toby and Gemma, um, are going to be the hosts of what's called the Alpha Film Series. And they've spent nearly a year filming Alpha around the world. Gemma is from CBeebies. Some of you recognise her from your five o'clock in the morning stints. Toby's on the staff at HTV. They're the compares. They've been to Jerusalem, they've been to Paris, they've been to Canada, they've been to South America. They've gone on location across the world filming Alpha. And this autumn, we'll use some of the talks as well as some live talks for our Alpha course. Bear Grylls has agreed to be the face of the Alpha course. Apparently, Bear Grylls with his face hidden because uh, it's a sort of trailer, teaser thing. Now, apparently, Bear Grylls is the most well-known face in the globe today. I said that at nine o'clock, and about ten people turned to each other and went, who's Bear Grylls? Bear Grylls was in the SAS, was in the UK military, was in the army, broke his back in three places. Uh, in order to prove to himself that he, he was better, he climbed Everest, um, and now does these amazing survivor programs, the island programs, and at any point in any country around the world, somebody somewhere is watching Bear Grylls on television. He's the most well-known face in the world. You may question why, but he is. Now, he has 
signed contracts with Universal and Disney and the Discovery Channel and all sorts of people. But what he's managed to negotiate for a year, just for a year, from this September till next September, his image rights have been signed over to Alpha. And so Bear Grylls is going to be the face of a global Alpha campaign starting in September. And basically he's going to be saying to people, look, you know something about me from what you've watched on television. You've seen my adventures. You've seen I'm a big, rugged man. Uh, you've seen that I can drink my own wee from a snake. Um, why you'd want to do that, I don't know. Uh, but he can, and he does. Um, but he's saying, I want you to know what's actually beneath the surface. Because Bear Grylls is a committed Christian. He did Alpha, and it's the foundation of who he is as a person. You're not going to be able to miss Bear Grylls from this September. He's going to be on cinema trailers, he's going to be on buses, he's going to be on billboards. What will that do? On one level, nothing. But what it will do is it will raise people's awareness of Alpha. And it means, therefore, that you have an opportunity to invite your friends, your neighbours, your work colleagues this September on an Alpha course. Maybe at this church, maybe somewhere else. So we need to be thinking now, who are we praying for that we might invite in September? So that the Holy Spirit might be at work now. He probably already is at work in people's lives. Of course he is. But it will focus our hearts and minds if we start to pray over the next few months. So that when the time comes, we invite that one person. Globally, the challenge is that Alpha wants to invite a billion people on Alpha this September. In Scotland, we want to invite a million people on Alpha this September. Those seem enormous figures, but actually you don't need to know about those figures because... That figure is made up one person at a time. It's you and it's me inviting our neighbour, our friend, our work colleague to come on our Alpha course this September. And so we come back to the question, do we love people because we want them to become Christians? Or do we want them to become Christians because we love them? Jesus said, go and do likewise. Richard.